Welcome to the Calvary Young Adults Podcast. We exist to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. Here's today's sermon. We're going to get real tonight. Um, my name is Sarah. I get to be the associate pastor here at Calvary Young Adults. And I'm so glad that you guys are here. Tis the season. We are so close to the holidays. And I don't know about you, but for me, holidays usually means family. And um, I don't know if you're also like me in this way, but how many of you would resonate with the statement that family can be complicated? Okay. Don't worry, the camera's to your backs. So if like someone at home is watching, like they can only see me. Hi, mom and dad, I'm raising my hand. Okay. I'm gonna practice a little bit deeper. Raise your hand if you are feeling some apprehension about spending the holidays with your family okay. It's okay. Like, I am with you. If not, praise God. Like, if you're, like, stoked to be with your family, I am so glad. But here's what I know it's true, especially for our generation. We actually face a really unique position with our immediate families, and here's why. Here's just one reason. The Bloomberg website, so they do investigative journalism, they do statistics, um, took a poll and they found out that 45% of all Americans ages 18 to 29, so it's almost all of us, I'm almost 30, are living with their families. 45% of us are living with our families. And if you're like going about life and you're like, okay, that sounds pretty normal, that stat hasn't been true since the 1940s. Like it has been a while since our age group, our demographic, at this point and stage in life are living with their families. So I say this to tell you that family is gonna hit a little closer of home to the millennials, to the Gen Z, um, but also if you haven't heard it by now, there's no shame for living with your family, whether it's your immediate or your extended family. Because this is the result of like a multitude of cultural, social, economic shifts here in the Western world that have impacted our trajectory and our timelines as it relates to maybe the generations before us. So I'm gonna show you just like a few slides and I'm wondering if this, if this is gonna resonate you. So with you, um, first up, so this is like the assumed path. It says emerging adults, but think of it young adults. This is like the assumed path of young adults, right? You go to high school, you go to college, you get your dream job, you meet the one, you get married, you have kids, right? Like that, whether it's conscious or subconscious seems to be just like sitting in our like collective minds that like this, this is like the linear path, right? Not right. This is actually what the path, especially of our two generations looks like practically. Who here is like, yes, that is me. <laughs> High school, college, job, maybe living together, internship, kids, travel bar abroad, living at home, roommates, and sometimes some of you are like living together. This is just a practical, realistic picture of what it looks like to be a millennial, to be in Gen Z. And I share this too because, listen, like we might be closer with our families, but we might not be finding our careers at the same times our parents did. Or, hey, we live in California, buying a home, like I celebrate you if you are a homeowner. <laughs> Starting a family, like this might start to feel like, oh, you're reading my mail. We don't, this is not happening at the same rate as our parents, which not only leaves us with more proximity to our families, but also potentially a larger gap of understanding between the family that we are close to. 
whether by relationship or proximity. So beyond helping us navigate the questions that can come up after every holiday, you know, the, hey, so are you seeing anybody? Or how's the career hunt going? Did you, did you get the job yet? Which now you can reply in our generation, this is what it looks like. So you can, you know, hopefully you took a picture of that slide and say, this is why, <laughs> this is why I'm not there yet. But really, like, my hope for tonight is as we look at the complexity of family, is that we can address three beliefs. I, I took some time in the past, like, really a few months just sitting and talking with people about what's going on in their families, their feelings around family, their apprehensions. Even this week, got to, like, hear a little deeper what's going on. And I identified three beliefs that we might hold as 18 to 30-year-olds about our families and how looking at the cl closer at the family of Christ himself, looking at his genealogy could actually bring good news to us, to our hurts and our hangups and our hopes around family during the holiday season. So if you have your Bible or your cell phone, we're gonna be opening up to Matthew chapter one, verses one through 16, and looking at everybody's favorite part of scripture, which is a genealogy. <laughs> All right, so I'm gonna be really transparent. I had like a whole like thought of like, I, I usually try to look up like the correct pronunciation of names before I say them. Cause I was like, as, as a pastor and a biblical scholar, but I did not have time to do that today. So I am going to read through the genealogy straight. You can just track with me. Um, and I just ask for your grace. Does that sound okay? All right, thanks guys. Thank you guys. I know it's a no judgment zone, but also you can judge me later. All right, so verse one. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. He had many brothers. Judah, the father of Prez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Prez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amenadab, yes, got it. Amenadab, the father of Nation. Nation, the father of Salmon, not Salmon, Salmon. The father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. You're like, yeah, finally, a name I recognize. Um, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Ammon. Ammon, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of oh, Sheetiel, Sheetiel, the father of Zerubbabel. They, now we're just like, we're like running out of like names where they're like, you know what? We need to put more letters in there. <laughs> Who is the father of, I know I'm embarrassed, <laughs> Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary is the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Do not take my word for those pronunciations. 
Um, did you guys hear any good baby names that you're like, you know what? <laughs> like that was just, it's wild to me that at the time those were like totally normal names. And then there's like David, we like chose to adopt like a few of them. Anyways, okay, so this genealogy is so long. It's so, as most are, um, 39 men and five women represented to be exact. So that's 44 people total. Caitlin, you can check my math on that. Um, and here's, I'm just gonna give you a breakdown because we're not gonna run through every single character or else we'd like be at church for the next year. But I hope to give you like a bird's eye view of what's going on so you at least can like have a snapshot of kind of what this means. Who are these people throughout generations? So to start, there are 15 kings in this genealogy, 16 if you include Jesus, three patriarchs, eight virtually unknown men. Like if you were to look up their names, this is the only reference to them is in this uh, Matthew's genealogy. There are four foreigners who are also all women. There are two widows and one prostitute. And the list goes on like this is what the genealogy of Christ is comprised of. And again, for time's sake, we're not going to address all of them. Uh, but before we get into the details, I just wanted to give you a brief overview. So I actually made this earlier because if you look up graphics for the genealogy of Christ from Matthew on Google, don't do it. They're terrible. They're terrible. Like really good content. But the way that this genealogy can be broken up is kind of like in three parts, three movements of time. To start, we have the patriarchs. So if you're familiar with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, um, they, these are the people of the promise of God. God makes a promise to a man named Abraham saying he will bless his offspring and make them into what we know today as the people of Israel, into a great nation. And God was determined to call that specific people group to himself so that through them, he can bless the entire world. So it kind of goes from him blessing this people group to being incredibly inclusive to the whole world. Genesis 25, 4, God says, I will make your descendants, Abraham, as numerous as the stars in the sky and will give them all these lands. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. So from the line of Abraham, we have all the other fathers and mothers of the faith that you might be familiar with, from Jacob to Ruth, all the way to Israel's first great king, David. So from the lineman of Abraham comes David, and that's where the monarchy starts. The people of God have been praying, and if you're like, wait, Sarah, David wasn't the first king of Israel, you're right, it was Saul. But God rejected him because of his unbelief by the end of his rule and reign, and that's why we remember David. And what happens through the line of David is actually really special. We see that after God makes this promise to Abraham, he then makes a very specific promise to David, saying that through David, through his bloodline, a great king would come that would rule all nations, would bring all people back to himself. And that king would be the Messiah. It would be the savior, not only of the Israel people, but of the entire world. So it's saying, okay, from the line of David, now we're gonna have this great nation, this great people group ruled by this great king. So they're waiting, they're starting to wait on this. But what happens during that time? This promise is made, all of these kings, both good and evil, as we'll see, come from this line of David. And then the people of God and Israel are taken over by Babylon. 
So they go into exile. So you see post-exile, like these are like, like this bloodline has survived. Like it has survived exile. It has survived like coups. Kings and queens have tried to kill each other by this point. And yet we see that it persists. The lineage of Christ persists until we arrive at the birth of Christ. So again, as you can see, it's divided up in different parts, but Jesus's family, like his extended family, kings, queens, murderers, prostitutes, widows, big reputations, no reputations, evil, noble, and at the end of the day, all broken sinners. The only perfect person in this family line is Jesus. And to me, that's already good news. Because, you know, if you were to ask Jesus, like, is your family complicated? Like Jesus, who came incarnate, meaning he came and took on flesh, lived with a family, lived with his family history, experienced much of what we experience. And you ask him, is your family complicated? He would say yes. He would say yes, maybe emphatically. Yes, my family is complicated. And that is the first piece of good news I wanna share with you guys today is that Jesus empathizes with the complexity of family. Like he empathizes, he gets it. He lived it, he walked it, he wasn't far off, but he was situated in a family with brothers and sisters all the while knowing that he was the Messiah. Like that has to bring up some like awkward family dynamics, am I right? Where you're like going throughout your day and Mary's like, well, he's the Messiah. Like you can't be mean to your brother, he's the Messiah, right? And Jesus is like, well, I'm God, so I have to forgive them, you know? But again, he was with us, he has a family line. But there's more good news when it comes to maybe some of the beliefs we have around our families. So the first belief I wanna address, again, after just like hearing some of your stories, after living some of this myself, is this, and I'm wondering if you've experienced this. Belief number one, I am responsible for the good of my family. Oof, I'm a firstborn, so this is like extra close to home. I'm responsible for the good of my family. But picture this. Like you're Abraham's grandkids. Like imagine you're your father Abraham's grandkids and you're going about your day and suddenly like you remember the Abrahamic covenant and you're like, oh shoot. Like a great nation is supposed to come through my family. A little bit of pressure, right? Or like, how about like being a part of a descendant of David where you're like, okay, now it's not just like a nation's gonna be birthed through my family, but like the Messiah himself is going to come through my family line. Like I would start thinking about how people perceive me, my actions, right? That's like a little bit of pressure, just a little bit of pressure. The anticipation of the literal Messiah coming through. And now, okay, like we, we could all take a deep breath, like Jesus already came. So like that does not have to be our, our story. But maybe try on some of these expectations. I'm wondering if you've ever faced the pressure of being the first person in your family um, for one, of being first-generation American. That was my grandparents coming over from Slovenia, trying to like figure things out. And you can still kind of like see some of that in my grandma and my mom, just the way that she's like, we have to make the most of everything. And like, we still do not give clothes. I like, into, I couldn't give clothes away until my adulthood because she was like, every gift you receive, like we have to hang on to this because we started with nothing. How about this? Maybe you're the first person in your family to graduate college, to get a higher education. You're going to school and you're like, you're feeling that. 
Like, I need to do this for my family. I'm going to be the first. Maybe you come from a long line of divorce and you're looking to get married. And you're like, man, I just want to be the first person in my family to stay married. That can feel weighty, right? Or how about this? Like, you come from a family that deals with some addiction. And this is so real, so real, especially in this community. But you're like determined, you're like, I wanna be the first person to break addiction in my family. I don't want my children to know that about me. You're the first person to move away and start fresh. I know that's my husband's story. He has like, he has, like, he has four brothers. He was the first person to move more than like a five mile radius from his family. And that was a big deal. It was a lot of pressure to like make it. Maybe it's the first to be financially responsible. Or how about this? You're the first to come to Christ in your family. And you're just like, I want my family to know Jesus. And these are all good things, right? They're all good things. But this can build up and suddenly we feel like we carry the pressure to improve the legacy of our family. Do you feel that way? Do you carry the pressure of being a waymaker in your family? It could be big or small. It could be something I didn't name. But you're like sitting here like, I want to start new patterns. I want to provide. I want to begin a spiritual legacy. Or how about like the other side of the coin in that? Like how many of you carry the pressure of not wanting to disappoint your family? Like maybe it's the flip. Maybe it's not that you're the way maker, but maybe you come from a family that just like has a legacy of something. It could be wealth. Like maybe you come from a family line where it's like everyone in your family, like they were like doctors and lawyers and super well off. And you're like, I want to be an artist. <laughs> or how in my case, like I wanted to be a pastor. And I'll tell you, like my family has come a long way and supporting me and accepting me. But do you know what my dad told me when I first said, hey, I think I'm gonna go into ministry. He said, you know what the difference there is between a large pizza and a pastor. And I was like, what, dad? He goes, a large pizza can feed a family. <laughs> Ooh, I know, but also like, whoa, dad, like <laughs> with the burn. And my dad's like a very, he's a very supportive person. Like he loves me, we have a very good relationship. But he was genuinely worried for me because he had been a successful businessman. He had been the first in his family to really break out and make it on his own make his own money, make his way in the world. And I felt that pressure. Like, I felt like I disappointed my family. I feel very differently now. But here's the truth that I had to believe and I'm inviting you to believe too. And it's this, is you are not your family's savior. You're not. It wasn't David that the promise actually wrote on, right? Because he was good enough. We'll talk about that in a little bit. He was not... He was not altogether good, but he was faithful to repent. But Christ didn't come through his line or Abraham's line because they were perfect, because they were the saviors. It's completely opposite. And can you bless and serve your family? Like, absolutely. That's still one of the first commandments in scripture with a promise is to honor your mother and father. You'll be blessed with long life, it says in Exodus. Um, but that's different than being your family's savior. And then on the inverse, like if you're coming from a family that has legacy that you feel like you have to live up to, how about this? Your family is not your savior. 
Like, I love my family. We've been through a lot, but like, I love them so much. I find so much comfort in knowing they're there. Like, it's hard to think that like one day I won't have my parents. Like, sorry, I got a little dark, but like pleasing them and making them happy and putting their needs and wants above God's will on my life and on your life will never satisfy you. And it definitely won't save you. They're imperfect. They're gonna fail you too. Jesus is the only savior figure in this entire family line, this entire family line. And that's true of your family line too. He's the only savior figure. And if you truly care for your family and you want their absolute good, even if it's hard, become someone who loves Jesus with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, who loves Jesus more than your family, than your spouse, than your friends, And from that place, you will begin to lean on and point to Jesus for the sake of your family so he could be the savior of your family. So with this belief, I am responsible for the good of my family. I just want to counter that with the truth. Your highest responsibility is loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is your highest responsibility. That is my highest responsibility in my family, in my marriage, in my friendships. But this is true if you are a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a father, or mother one day. The utmost good of your family will come from a relationship that has a reliance on Christ. Okay, so how about the flip side? Some of us wrestle with the idea that we have to be our family savior or that they're our savior. But try on this belief. My family is too broken to have anything good come out of it, including myself. Like my heart hurts as I say that because like I've had moments of that. In my family, all the women on the side of my family really wrestle with mental health. And I've just had moments where I'm like, am I just like too broken, God? Like, are you gonna be able to make something good out of me? And I think with that too, like something happens when we're in adulthood, we were talking about this earlier, is when we become adults, we begin to realize that our like parents, our guardians are just people. Like, They are people that were like, whoa, I am the age that you had me at. That's amazing. Like, I don't know if I could have a kid at this age, you know? But they're just people with their own hurts, hangups, and disappointments. And the more perspective we can get outside of our families, our families of origin, the more we can also begin to identify patterns and cycles that dare we say are less than healthy. Our generation also is just exposed to so much popular psychology. Like therapy is amazing. I go to therapy, I think it's wonderful. We do a lot of introspection. We do a lot of investigation of our family patterns and histories. And every family has this. Every family has mess because every family is full of imperfect people. But as we look at our parents, we're beginning to recognize like, they're no longer superheroes or supervillains. Like we can really like romanticize them when we're younger, but they're broken people who tried or didn't try to do their best. And in turn, maybe has left you and I with some of our own hurts, right? Our own disappointments, our own hangups, and maybe some fear, like the fear of, am I going to be just like my dad, my mom? Which again, praise God for therapy but also praise God for a history of families just like ours that we get to draw from. Because if you're looking more closely at your family and you're disappointed or discouraged by the mess or the implications on your future life, listen up, 
because we're about to talk about the promise of the Davidic covenant. Like King David, who often is so elevated in church and in scripture, but the truth that Jesus, the savior of the people of Israel, the savior of the entire world came through David's bloodline. And as we know, or may know, David is famously called as a man after God's own heart. If you know him from scripture, we think of like David as the shepherd, the boy warrior who defeated Goliath with like one stone in his pocket, the good king of Israel after Saul, like he redeemed the legacy of the kings of Israel. Yet, what do we see about David in his genealogy? Like, did you guys notice what came near David's name? It said, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Wait, what? He's the father of Solomon. He had a child from another man's wife? Yeah, yeah, he did. And as Brian Howard often says, like, I love the scriptures because it is not this like shiny, perfect fairy tale that we look at and we go, okay, yeah, that, that all makes sense. Like everyone in here is perfect. They've got it figured out. They love God. But instead, like Matthew pretty much airs David's dirty laundry for everyone to see. He didn't even say like, oh yeah, David and Bathsheba. He was like, David and Uriah's wife, who you know is Bathsheba. It was Bathsheba. The woman that David lusted after, he saw her bathing on a rooftop. He lusted after her. She was still married. Before her husband was even out of the picture, he had her taken to his palace and he coerced her to put it gently into having relationships with him and then got pregnant. And then he got really freaked out because he already, he's like in too deep at this point. Like he's violated a woman, gotten her pregnant. So what does he do? He sends her husband to the front lines of a major battle and he dies. Like David is an adulterer, he is a murderer. And yet he is called a man after God's own heart, why? Because after that time and time again, he comes before the Lord in all honesty and says, Lord, I've messed up. I, I don't wanna be this way. I am a sinner and I recognize that. And I'm turning to you and asking, would you make me clean? That is why. David is counted a man after God's own heart. Not because he lived a perfect life, not that he's even a perfect example of what it looks like to rule and to reign. And when I think of David now, I used to kind of get upset because that story is really tough. And I'm sorry if that like brought something up in you. But now I try to remember David with grace and mercy. I try to remember the grace and mercy of God so my question for you is, as you think about your family and maybe some of those unsavory bits, those unsavory characteristics, things you've learned about your mom or your dad or your guardians, do you remember God's grace and mercy when you look at yourself or your family? Like when's the last time you stopped and paused, even if it feels so close, so real, so much resentment, so much anger, because what those emotions, they're not bad to address or even have, but if we don't like really dive into them over time, what happens is we let them paint a picture of our future that is not actually based on the truth of who God is in our present. We begin to measure people by their past sins. And I would dare to say that we begin to imagine a future for our lives, our future families, based on God not being in the picture. We're saying, God, if you were completely absent, this is what my future would look like. And that might be true. 
but that is not the advantage we have. We have the advantage of knowing Christ, of knowing his grace and his mercy, and even inviting that, declaring that, praying that over our families. I prayed for three years for my dad to know Jesus, like three years. Like I think most of my life, I like it didn't really matter to me that much until I got to college and was like, oh my gosh, like I might not see my dad in eternity. I was like in Texas, I was thousands of miles away and I was like, what is he gonna do without my influence on him? And the Lord like humbled me and was like, you're gonna pray for your dad. You're gonna pray every day on your hands and knees. And my parents were not having a happy time in their marriage around then, I'll just be transparent. But I prayed for three years. I remember getting that phone call when my dad was like, hey, sir, I just want you to know, like I got baptized this weekend. It changed everything. I, start, I stopped harboring the resentment that I had because my parents didn't get along growing up and that bitterness. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna be merciful and I'm gonna pray and I'm gonna extend that same grace that I know the Lord has given me. See, this is the framework that Christ sees us through, his own family through us included. But what about Solomon? Like we can continue down the line and I am, I'm just gonna give you some examples like within Jesus's genealogy. Like biblically and historically, like Solomon is considered to be one of the wisest men that ever lived. Like he wrote Proverbs. That's just like the book of wisdom that we go to. But what's also true of Solomon, he had over, I think it's 300 wives, 700 wives and 300 concubines. Like, I don't know. I look at that, I'm like, is he really a wise guy? Like, I, is that really what wisdom looks like? And guess what? Like, jokes aside, like his wives led him astray because they were from all these different nations and they brought idol worship into the nation of Israel. And what happened? He allowed terrible things. He allowed child sacrifice in his kingdom. Like this man is supposed to have all the wisdom of God. This is tough. And it makes me think of like the connection between David and Solomon. And I'm like, there might be some patterns here. There might be some repeats. And you might be sitting here too going like, there's things in my family I do not want to repeat. So I just want to bring to light this truth. Um, we may inherit some proclivities from our family, but we are free to determine our own practices. You are free to determine who you are going to be in Christ, who are going to be as a man or a woman of God. And his transformative love makes that possible. Like, I'm not gonna beat around the bush. Like we see statistics about addiction and genetics and genetics can account for like 40 to 60% of your risk for something like an addiction. Like David and Solomon both seem to have a bit of impulse control issues, again, to put it lightly. But the difference is how in each of them ultimately responded. It was entirely on them. And I think it could be easy to be the kids who look at our parents and feel that we're just gonna be just like them and either completely pendulum swing in the opposite direction, want nothing to do with them, or just out of fear, give in to those things. I was on a walk with my mentor earlier today and she's an amazing woman of God and so is her husband. Someone like I look to who I've clinged to is kind of like a mother figure over the years. And she was just kind of sharing with me, grieving a little bit, that she and her husband raised her kids to know Christ. And none of them are walking with Christ right now. And I don't say that to discourage you, but I say it, we just like, we're reflecting on this. We're like, you know what? Like, it's amazing to plant those seeds. And by the miracle and mystery of God, like he can make those grow. 
But there's some point where we just have to release ourselves and our families to say like, we are free to make our own choices. We are free to decide how we want to live either for Christ or against him. And I'm just gonna walk you through some more examples. Like, again, we're not gonna through every single person, but this is nuts. Like in the patriarch era, this is basically how it goes. Like if we think like, okay, there's patterns. Like if you raise your kid to love Jesus, like maybe they'll love Jesus. Let's just look at what happens within this patriarchy, okay? Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, it says he established the southern kingdom and he abandoned the ways of God, almost leading to the destruction of Judah. And you're like, okay, that's bad. Well, what happened to his son? Well, it looks like Abijah, he followed in that pattern too. Um, it says he literally committed all the sins his father had committed before him and he didn't obey God. But then we have Asa. Asa's his kid. But he's, it says he was zealous in maintaining the true worship of God. And he rooted out all idolatry. He like saw what his father did and he was like, we're gonna do something different. Then there's Jehoshaphat. He was considered a good and godly king, but it says here he wasn't able to pass on his faith to his son. Why? Because he had a choice in that. We have Uzziah, which we've talked about him in here before, but he fell because of his pride. He wanted to be like the priest. So what happens to him? He becomes pretty much isolated from his kingdom. And then there's Jotham who's godly. So we have this isolated king, ostracized king, and then his son is godly. But Jotham, son Ahaz, it says he's a very wicked king. And it goes on and on. Then there's these patterns where you're like, oh my gosh, this person must be evil because their father was. And then you see people completely flip the scripts because they're seeking after God with all their mind, heart, and soul. Because I think it can be discouraging when we looked at past patterns of our family and we see things that we're not proud of. We see things that we don't want to inherit. I think the truth of what we see throughout the lineage of Christ is this. Some things are going to be accomplished in your family. Like they're going to be accomplished in you, in your family. Like we look at David's example, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jotham, later Hezekiah, Josiah. These are all good kings, righteous kings who are able to lead their nation of Israel or Judah to the heart of God. They have individual legacies of righteousness that impact those around them. That was accomplished in them, in their family. But when we look at all these evil, unrighteous people and consider that they're still in the line of Christ, it points to the truth that some things are gonna be accomplished through your family. Like if you know Jesus here and the rest of your family hasn't for generations, like Christ is accomplishing something through your family. And there's gonna be things in your life that you may not see or see in your family line or genealogy that Christ is still gonna accomplish through. Why? Because he is the faithful one. Like take heart, there's a mystery in this, in God's goodness and his grace and his mercy that extends beyond our understanding. Because when we look at Rehoboam, Ahaz, Manasseh, all these guys I name, they were evil and they turned away from God completely. But what happened? In the end, Jesus still came from this line and he was born and he brought good news to the world. They did not stop that from happening. So the truth that can come alongside the belief that we can hold of my family is too broken to have anything good come out of it, including me, is that Jesus chose to come through a lineage of broken people to show the power of his redemptive love. Like he shows that he knew this was gonna happen. It says Manasseh, I didn't talk about this. One of the kings that said he shed more blood than anyone else in all of Judah. 
And Jesus then came and died and shed his blood so that we all may know him. So that redemption and healing would be possible generations to come. But that's, that's his legacy. That's in his family line. He came to flip the script, even for the most evil in his family. Now, I know I'm, I'm running up on time, but I just feel like this moment is so important. Um, if this is true of how maybe you're feeling about your family and your life, and you're just like, Sarah, there's brokenness that maybe you don't understand. It's true, I might not. I just, again, want to invite us to that mentality of God's grace and his mercy. And are you guys okay if we just like pause and like get to pray for our families? Yeah? All right. So I'm just gonna give us a moment to like bow our heads and open our hands. And you could pray something like, Lord, would you help me believe in your redemptive love? That it can take away the brokenness and make good things out of my life and make it beautiful. Lord, I just ask that you would call specific family members to mind. Maybe this is the first time they're being prayed for. Thank you, Lord, that your gospel is so powerful. It's such good news in our lives that as long as we're breathing, nothing is too far off. Thank you, Jesus. I just thank you for every name that's being lifted up right now. Would you just restore our hope in your grace and in your mercy? Thank you, Lord, that we could just stand in the gap to believe for these people who have maybe hurt us and for those that we so long to see in eternity with you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Mm. I'm gonna say amen, but I'm also gonna invite you, if you're like, man, this is someone that is the Lord has put on my heart, I wanna continue to pray for, like, do that. Do that tonight. We have a prayer wall in the back. We'd love to partner with you in praying for your family but just we are invited to be men and women who are defined by the gospel of Christ, by his grace and his mercy, and to see others in that same way. So I'm coming up on my final, my final belief, final belief that we can believe about our families, and it's this, I'm out of place in my family. I'm out of place in my family. I go home, I don't, I don't get the jokes anymore, I feel like I don't belong. I've grown up, I've kind of grown apart. I don't really relate to my family anymore. It feels kind of foreign to go home for the holidays or to even go home tonight to my house. I feel a little misunderstood, maybe alone. I felt that way in my family before. And there are five people I wanna point out just as the last examples in the line of Christ that I believe gives us hope, you hope if you're feeling out of place in your family and they're actually the five women that are mentioned. And I love this is just like an artistic portrayal. So from left to right, we have Tamar, we have Rahab, we have Bathsheba, who is the wife of Uriah, and we have Mary, the mother of Jesus. And before I just give you a little snippet of their stories, I just need to highlight how rare it is that these women were even included in this genealogy. Like in the ancient Near East at the time, the whole family line rode off of usually the firstborn son. It was usually a man. There's even genealogies that don't include these women because it wasn't the cultural practice at the time. But Matthew was so intentional, so intentional to include these women. And I think that's just such good news because it reflects and celebrates the diversity and brilliance of the family of God. The diversity and brilliance that Jesus died for to invite everyone in especially these women.
So let's look a little more closely. So we start with Tamar. Now Tamar, she was a Canaanite foreigner. So not only was she a woman, she was a foreigner and she was widowed. And we see her kind of in this messy story with Judah where she actually decides in that moment, we need to continue our family line. So Judah is her father-in-law and they have a kid together. Not kosher necessarily, um, which is a lot of scripture, but even through this, in this, like the continuation of this line, there's something really unique about her. And she's like, according to scripture, one of the only women in the Hebrew scriptures in the Old Testament who's called righteous. She's called righteous in the eyes of God. So she's called righteous. She kind of changes the, the family line a little bit by having a child with Judah. But through that, the birth of Christ comes. Next, we have Rahab. So Rahab was also a foreigner. And the story of Rahab, that she, she was a prostitute in Jericho. If you know the story of the walls of Jericho, they fall down, they're marching around, the whole thing. Um, but she risked her life to disobey the king of Jericho by actually harboring and hiding spies sent from Joshua who were surveying the land. So the people of God were coming to take their land back. And these were considered foreigners and intruders, but they were there on mission from God. And she takes them in, like risks her life. And subsequently, she has a son with Salmon, and his name is Boaz. If you're familiar with the story of Boaz, that takes us to our next woman, who's Ruth. So Ruth was the mother of Obed, Obed but Ruth's story, she's also a foreigner, and her husband dies. And she's with her mother-in-law, and she tells her, I will go where you go. Your gods will become my God, whatever you want, I will be by your side. She's very, very faithful to her husband, her late husband's mom. So she follows her and she goes to Bethlehem and that's where she meets Boaz. She's like working in his fields and he's what they call like a kinsman redeemer, kinsman redeemer, which means that he is the closest in line. Like this is a total like God intersection where she decides, all right, this is it. And they continue the Davidic line. And then of course we get to David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Like my heart feels for Bathsheba. Like so much of this was against her will. But again, God takes something so terrible and makes it so beautiful. Like I have to assume that Christ was just with her, like the comfort of God was just with her in this story that she didn't get to write for herself. But even to know like Jesus got to come through this, this tragedy this violation. And then we land on Mary. Now she's not considered a foreigner, but she is not who you would picture to mother the savior of the world. Okay, she's a teenager. She's in what is now modern day Palestine in Bethlehem, no money. She's engaged to someone who's coming from the line of David, but at this point, it doesn't matter anymore. They're under the Roman empire. No one cares about the status of the Israeli people at this point but it says that she's righteous and the Lord looks upon her with favor. And even when the angel of the Lord visits her, she responds in such humility, such humility. And I love like what's so unique. Every other time a woman's referenced, it's like she's the wife of, or she's the mother of, but here the line is Joseph is the husband of, the husband of Mary. Why? Because he, oh yeah, you pop. Because <laughs> ultimately God elevates this role of this teenage girl 
showing us that women, despite the cultural norm at the time, were so valued and precious in the eyes of God. Like this isn't Mary and Joseph having a son, right? This was Mary and the Holy Spirit. This is Mary and the Holy Spirit. Through women, the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, the Messiah enters the world. And that's the definition of a humble beginning. And I recall the lives and legacies of these women to remind you that you might believe that you're out of place in your family, but there's always a place for you in the family of God. There's always a place for you in the family of God. These women probably felt so out of place. I'm gonna invite the band back up. Here's the last thing I just wanna say to you. If you're feeling any of this, you're feeling like you have to be the savior of your family. If you're feeling like your family is too broken for anything good to come through it, if you're feeling out of place, I just wanna remind you of the gospel. If you're walking with Jesus Christ, praise the Lord, I'm gonna remind you of the gospel. And if you're not, I just invite you to listen. Like at your worst, think of like the worst thing you've ever thought about yourself. I won't leave you there, don't worry. Um, and picture like Christ in the room with you and going, hey, A, that's not true, but B, like, this is why I came. Like, I love you. Despite what you think about yourself, despite what people have told you, like, I love you. I went to the cross, like, a man died for you. Like, we hear that so much in church, but if someone like you knew actually died for you, I'm sure that would impact your life forever. But like, he died for you so that you may live in him so that all your hurts and hangups would be received in comfort and hope so that your physical, spiritual, emotional ailments would be put in the hands of a great physician. And so that when we look at our families, we wouldn't be overcome with despair. Even the most horrible, tragic things that I know can happen within a family, Christ looks at and says, let my love transform your perspective of yourself and your family through my eyes. And let me work, allow me to work. Because Christ took the cross for you. He lived a perfect life, took the cross, overcame death so that we can live. And I hope that's good news to you tonight. And I would just say, like, if that's your first time hearing that, I just want to invite you to, like, nudge the person next to you and be like, that is good news to me. And if you're like, I want Jesus for the first time tonight, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to invite you, if you came with someone, tell them. If you didn't, Tell the person next to you, this is what community and churches for say, hey, I think I want Jesus. What do I do? Could you pray with me? Can you tell me what it means for you to love Jesus more, how it's impacted your life? Can we pray for our families together? Like I could do that with you, but like we are meant to do this together. You can still come find me or Pastor Michael. I love you guys. I'm gonna pray for us now. Lord God, we just thank you that you came to speak directly into our wounds and our soft spots. Thank you, Lord, that you provided us with families, some of them who do not look like you as a father. And some of them, Lord, that we can rejoice and thank them that they point us back to you. But Lord, whatever we're coming from tonight, I just thank you that we can look to you as our savior, as our family savior, as our friend and our helper in our time of need. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would grow with mercy and grace for ourselves and our loved ones. Help us walk in that confidence in this holiday season, God, and believe that the gospel has power and impact over our families, Lord, that nothing is too lost or broken. We love you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Let's worship.
Thank you for listening to this message. I hope it was a blessing to you and want to invite you to join us on Thursday nights for service at 7 p.m. To connect with us, follow us on Instagram at calvya_ or on our website, calvarywestlake.org.